This is The Guardian. We're now over halfway through the COP27 UN Climate Summit in Egypt, where governments, businesses and activists have gathered to try and save the planet from more devastating heating. Guardian reporters and editors have been on the ground, closely watching what's been happening. So today we're catching up with them to hear about progress so far and what we can expect as talks head towards their climax at the end of this week. Will we get any closer to preventing climate catastrophe? We're about to find out. From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Good morning from Sharm El Sheikh. It is a warm day. There's beautiful mountains in the background um, that go down to the sea, which is full of incredible coral reefs. And you can see Saudi Arabia in the background from some of the coastline. But inside the blue zone, which is the main part of, of the COP, where negotiations are taking place, you can't really see a lot of that. That's friend of the podcast, Patrick Greenfield biodiversity and environment reporter who, like others at COP27, has been somewhat struggling with the conditions in Sharm el-Sheikh. Last week, it seemed like the meeting maybe took organisers slightly by surprise in terms of food and drink. So it's been pretty tough to get uh, enough to eat, definitely. Water was a struggle Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But the queues don't look as long this time round. It's only Monday, it's, it's about 11 o'clock here Monday, so fingers crossed they'll have learned some lessons over the weekend. Delegates going hungry and thirsty is not ideal for forging groundbreaking climate plans. There have been other challenges too. Rubbish piled into recycling bins, a sewage leak, confusing maps, and a repressive atmosphere as activists continue to be surveilled. But, according to Patrick, it's not been all bad. I have been able to have that kind of lovely cop experience that reporters enjoy. I've been able to walk up to Mia Motley and have a chat with her, the Prime Minister of Barbados, and she's a real star here, a real uh, voice, I think, for the Global South. There's lots of scientists. I really love coming to COPs, um, in part because of that. There are just incredibly smart people here, alongside crucial activists, um, and indigenous leaders. But this year, it does feel like we're hearing more from those who may not want the radical action on fossil fuels that our planet desperately needs. I'm going to take a right here and head into the pavilion area. Straight in front of me is an enormous Kingdom of Saudi Arabia pavilion where you can see lots of interesting things about the oil and gas industry. It's vital not to forget why the world has been brought together to focus on climate and environment, even if things aren't going as well as we might hope. For many countries here, it's existential. And every country has a seat at the table. Palau, say, is right there with the United States talking about these issues, which I think is really important. But from speaking to governments, um, negotiators, people on the ground, I don't think people are 
particularly hopeful about what's going to come out the other end. With that backdrop, I called The Guardian's environment editor, Fiona Harvey, to get a sense of what's been on the agenda so far and what could happen next. First off, I wanted to hear about her experience of the first week of the conference. This is a really difficult conference. We left COP26 last year in Glasgow on a bit of a high because there was a great spirit there, a consensus among countries. Countries came together and they agreed for the first time to target a limit of 1.5 degrees. Since then, everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. We've seen rising energy prices. And then, of course, we saw the Ukraine war, which sent energy prices even higher. We've seen greenhouse gas emissions continue to rise. So it was always going to be a tremendously difficult conference this year. And so it has proven to be. And so many challenges ahead to try and get everyone back on track. And one of the biggest themes this year, at least from an outside perspective, seems to have been money and particularly loss and damage has been important at the conference. Loss and damage being the fact that richer countries should be providing money to the poorer countries who are feeling the impacts of the climate crisis. Now, has anything actually happened there? Has any money been put on the table? Very little money has been put on the table so far, but then it's very early for anyone to actually come up with money for this. The sums that are involved could be very large. The Pakistan floods, for instance, they're estimated to have cost about 30 to $40 billion in damage. So we need to find ways to fund that. The private sector will need to be involved in some ways. Ideas that have been floated around here are a carbon tax of some kind or a tax on frequent flyers. Unfortunately, the linchpin of climate finance at the moment is the World Bank. And what we've seen is that the World Bank does not appear to be all that interested in climate finance. This could be connected to the fact that the president of the World Bank, David Malpass, who was appointed by Donald Trump, has been a long-time climate denier. And a lot of people are calling for fundamental reform of the World Bank in order to get it giving money to poor countries and getting it in a form that doesn't drive them deeper into debt. Patrick Greenfield did put accusations of climate denial directly to David Malpass, which he denied. President, President Malpass, I'm a report with The Guardian. Are you a climate denier? Are you a climate denier? But you, you refuse to answer questions. You're a public figure. Are you a climate denier? You can't tell me you know that I'm not. You know that I'm not. And so don't re- misreport it. Thanks. Nice to see well, you. World leaders say the World Bank needs reform. Do you agree with them? Do you agree? So, Fiona, money has been big on the agenda, both formally and informally. But of course, there's also decarbonisation. You know, countries were supposed to be bringing their updated plans on how they were going to improve their decarbonisation targets to bring us closer to this 1.5 degrees that was agreed at COP26. But as you've already said, carbon emissions from fossil fuels are hitting a high and according to the global carbon project that looks at quantifying emissions we have nine years until we go through that 1.5 degrees if we keep on at our current rates so we do need really big moves from big polluters 
How much of that have you seen at COP27? Well, some countries are being successful in bringing down their greenhouse gas emissions. Emissions are falling in in Europe and the US and various other developed countries. But China is the world's biggest emitter. And it's difficult to see that they've done a great deal in the past year since COP26 in setting new targets or setting out a new national plan on this. China is doing an awful lot to bring down its greenhouse gas emissions. It's investing an awful lot in renewable energy, but it's not always the most transparent country in terms of showing us. Well, that sounds very promising. And I remember at COP26, there were some big promises on methane, a very powerful greenhouse gas. Have you seen any progress on that? President Biden came to COP27 last week and he talked about methane. He's very keen on pushing forward with this global methane pledge. There are some big sources of methane. They include uh, agriculture, so people eating a lot of meat adds to methane. But also oil and gas facilities around the world are a huge source of methane. Some of the biggest sources are from Russia. So It would be a really good thing for the planet if Russia were to engage on this issue of methane. Unfortunately, they seem to be as careless of the future as they are of the present. And it's very unlikely that we will see any engagement from Russia on that here. And talking about engagement, Fiona, I did read that there were 636 fossil fuel lobbyists, which seems like an awful lot. And there are even some fossil fuel executives sitting on panels. What have you made of the presence of fossil fuel companies at this year's COP? It certainly is a large presence and well, it's really difficult. Uh, on the one hand, some people say these are people who we need to talk to because they're the problem and you don't get anywhere if you just ignore them. On the other hand, if they are here, then they could try to stymie progress or to drum up more business for themselves. If those companies were putting all of their gains into renewables, then we might get somewhere. But that's not the evidence so far. Another very big issue here that the oil and gas lobbyists are highly involved in is over African gas. There are a lot of people here who are campaigning against the exploitation of African gas, and they're calling for Africa to get more funding instead for renewable energy. Africa has abundant resources in the form of sun and wind. And if you had investment in Africa for these things, it could transform the African economy. But this isn't just a question for Africa either, because renewables are getting cheaper. And there is this kind of question hanging over all of us, which is why aren't governments and private companies doing this kind of investment in renewables? What are the forces holding us back? It seems like we could be creating this really positive change that would be good for everyone. And it seems kind of financially sensible as well. And yet we're not doing it. It's incredibly frustrating. There is a great deal of money that is going into renewables, but the fossil fuel infrastructure is there and those companies are making record for massive profits at the moment and they're just pouring it back into what they already do. Some governments are really not helping. If you look at the United Kingdom, there are huge tax breaks for investing in oil and gas. That's exactly the opposite of what you should be doing. And at the same time in the UK, onshore wind farms, which are the cheapest form of energy, are effectively banned. 
So if you've got big countries like that doing things that are so inimical to progress on the climate crisis, what can you do? So now we're heading into the second week of COP27. What's coming up? What have you got your eye on? What are you expecting or hoping to see? This week is when the negotiations get really serious. There's these things called uh, square brackets. And basically, when you have something that hasn't been agreed by all countries, then those phrases or, or clauses or sentences are put within square brackets. There are huge numbers of things within square brackets at the moment, and the task of the Egyptian hosts will be to take all of those bits of text out of the square brackets and put it either into the text itself or discard it. So we will be seeing row after row, I'm afraid, over the next few days. Right, so some challenges ahead in getting that documentation finalised. You know, at the end of COP26, you made the really important point that we can't treat these conferences as failures because it's where the vital progress happens, even if perhaps there isn't enough of it. But seeing all the headlines over the past year of devastation, temperature rises, I do feel a sense of disappointment and frustration. And actually, in some ways, I see these news stories and I'm quite frightened. I wonder what your reflections are now halfway through COP and going into these kind of really challenging negotiations over the next week. COPs are the only place where the whole world gets together to talk about the climate crisis. It's vital that we do make progress here. Ten years ago, we were headed for probably about six degrees of warming, which would just be unthinkable. That would be a completely unlivable planet. After the Paris Agreement in 2015, we got that down to heading for about three degrees of warming. And with the pledges that were made at COP26 last year, if all of those pledges are fulfilled, we'll get to about 1.8 degrees. That's still far from ideal, and it's far from guaranteed that those pledges will actually be met. But you can see that there is progress happening. Some countries are bringing down their greenhouse gas emissions. Some are investing heavily in renewable energy. And the price of moving to renewable energy is much lower now. It's far cheaper than going for fossil fuels. So we just need to accelerate this progress. Fiona, thank you so much. And I know I'm going to be keeping up with all your reporting over the next week, which will no doubt bring about some important progress keeping our fingers crossed for that thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us today thank you thanks again to fiona harvey and patrick greenfield you can read all of the guardian's coverage of cop 27 from our team on the ground at theguardian.com now i don't need to tell you that fiona harvey is genuinely one of the cop experts she's been reporting on them from the 2004 meeting in argentina And since she's witnessed and covered the unprecedented climactic events and devastation, as well as the historic achievements in tackling carbon emissions. So in a critical year for the climate, Guardian documentaries followed Fiona in her reporting, as she asked global leaders, activists and scientists if global democracy is enough to save humanity from the brink of annihilation. 
It really is fascinating and powerful stuff. And you can watch the film at theguardian.com forward slash documentaries. That's theguardian.com forward slash documentaries. And that's it from us today. The producers were me, Madeline Finley, and Ned Carter-Miles. The sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. And the executive producer was Georgia Moody. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian.